Bears can find a lot of reasons to worry about today's financial markets, and we regularly cover a lot of those on this program. But in this video, we hear from a market bull to understand the other side of the story. What may the Bears be getting wrong? But I think that the key thing of the last decade is there's obviously been a proliferation of passive uh, investors and dollars going into passive strategies, as well as, you know, I think JP Morgan puts it, 90% of trades are computer-based. And so if you don't understand how everybody else is positioned, if you don't understand, right, what is driving the security that you have a thesis on, your, your thesis may not matter. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Adam Taggart, founder of Wealthion, welcoming you back for another week of making sense of money and the markets so that you can make better informed decisions about building your wealth. Now, many of the recent experts featured on this program have been very skeptical of today's richly valued markets and have been urging investors to take caution. To avoid the echo chamber effect, many of you have contacted me wisely asking for an interview focused on the other side of the story. What do the bulls think? How do those who are actively long this market rationalize their optimism? What may bears be misunderstanding? To find out, I'm pleased to welcome Nadine Terman to the program. Nadine is CEO of Solstein Capital and a regular commentator on CNBC's popular trading show, Fast Money. Nadine, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Adam. All right. And I guess, Nadine, in full transparency, I should let folks know that a million years ago, you and I were junior investment banking analysts uh, working in the same bullpen at Merrill Lynch. And then we both went to the same uh, business school program at Stanford. I think I was like two years ahead of you. So I think we just missed each other. But, but basically, we've, we've known each other for a long time. That's right, right. We suffered during the same period and enjoyed another period of our lifetimes together. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to put it. All right. Well, look, Nadine, that said, you're not going to escape the question that I ask all of my guests here at the beginning, um, which is just at a very high level. What is your current assessment of today's global economy and financial markets? Adam, we're generally bullish on risk and anticipate we'll be able to maintain that disposition into December, probably next year in the early, maybe January, February. We do believe, however, that inflation may have sowed the seeds of its own destruction via depressing you know, Biden's infrastructure agenda and all the bullish commodity market speculation that coincided with that fiscal policy catalyst. So our current reflationary environment may turn into stagflation. And just so you know, your viewers understand, reflation is when the growth of GDP is accelerating and the growth of inflation is accelerating. But stagflation is when that inflation stays accelerating, but the growth of GDP is decelerating. So that's obviously a really different setup. And when we think about asset markets, you know, they might have begun the process of reducing breath, so not everything going up at the same time, particularly in the physical commodities asset class. And so we might be into the peak of the ongoing bull market in most risk assets, but again, that breath is probably declining. So you're going to see some winners, but you're not going to be having winners across the board. Um, and obviously that hawkish October CPI data dramatically reduced the probability of realizing Goldilocks. So what's the difference between Goldilocks and the other two I mentioned? That's when the growth of GDP is accelerating, but the growth of inflation is decelerating. So that was a potential to be hit technically um, from a bottom-up perspective macro regime, but we're probably not going to be able to get that because of that hawkish print. So again, we're currently reflation. We're looking to when are we going to transition to either 
um, inflation or deflation. And those are really different setups going into 2022. All right, and maybe we can talk about those in a few minutes, but um, Nadine, so um, talking about inflation, sowing the seeds, uh of, of destruction, oh, destruction. Here. yeah uh man uh remember i'm bringing you on to be the bull here <laughs> yeah. no I'm, I'm i'm kidding here i really appreciate you telling us however you see the world um but uh, but it is interesting that that um you know uh there's a perception fair or not that uh you know cnbc is sort of a uh, a station that just cheerleads the markets and and you're on there pretty regularly on on uh fast money. Um, and it, I think it is really interesting and, and somewhat telling that, you know, you're giving a tempered assessment here of the markets, um, that, that even, even um, the people coming on CNBC look at the data and say, look, uh, probably not Goldilocks going forward. Again, don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I think you said that yourself. All right. So before we dig into maybe some of the finer aspects of what you talked about, I, I do just want to stay at a high level here for a moment and ask the question, um, what are the bears missing? And, and a little bit of context behind that is, um, you know, I would say the preponderance of experts that we've had on this channel in the past uh, definitely fall on the market skeptical side of things. And I think a lot of the people who watch this channel do so because they have that same sort of skepticism in their minds or at least in their guts. And I've heard from many of them, hey, you know, we don't want an echo chamber here. Um, you know, we don't know what our blind spots are by definition. So um, we'd love to hear from people that have a more optimistic view of the investing landscape. And you mentioned yourself, you're still active in the game yeah. and you see opportunity here at least to the end of the year. So um, what, what's your answer to, you know, the, the, the folks that are heavily bearish? What, what might be they being blind to here? Process and data. So you have to look at process, you have to look at data. And I guess I'd answer your question is duration, right? And so you're looking at a time horizon. Um, you know, I have to watch four time horizons roughly. So there's today, tomorrow. So what's the current setup and how are other investors positioned? So I think what to answer your question, and I'll get back to actual statistics, they're missing that. How are others positioned? Um, and this is a, a big part of like, how do we generate our excess returns? is that you don't wanna have a consensus position for at least very long. Because if you're right, you probably don't make much money. Everybody's on your side of the trade. But if you're wrong, right, then you don't lose that much money. And so what you wanna have is a lot of non-consensus consensus positions. And I think what they're missing to answer your question, I'll come back to it though, is the investor positioning data. So the first duration is like today, tomorrow. The second one is the coming week. So what else could matter short term? And we can come back to that. And then um, the current quarter, and then call it the next three quarters. So we spend a lot of time and we use data to every single day, look at the macroeconomic statistics as well as the technical statistics. So the first three parts of our investment framework, or the key parts, I should say, are one, the macro, two, like fundamental stock picking, security picking, and then three is the tactical. So they're missing the first and the third. So if you look at where is um, the world right now, Everywhere but China is in reflation. So what does well on reflation? Energy, infotech, industrials, consumer discretionary, like you saw the retail print this morning from Walmart. So I think they're missing number one, that certain assets can continue to do well in these reflationary environments. So that's the setup we're in right now. But then two is the technical. And so where's my stats? I put some on here. Is that you know coming into the week, investors were short the Russell, short the tenure, long the dollar short natural gas, long gold against other positioning. 
and we could see that they were roughly three standard deviations short. Wheat, soybeans, sugar, cocoa, I mean, you know, what net gas, they were short the 10 year and over one in net gas, um, meaningfully short wheat, soybeans, sugar, cocoa, other commodities. So let's say you have a consensus position with everybody else, like you're short, short net gas, you're short all these commodities. Like what happens when there's any incremental good news? That thing explodes to the upside. So I think what some people are missing is that you have to be looking at that data and you get it once a week by the safety C futures and options positioning data, but then you get it every single day by the market as well as obviously the options market to know where implied volatility versus realized volatility is and some of the volume data, right? So you're looking at that and you could say that coming new week, you knew that you could be long natural gas. You might not like natural gas. You might think the market's gonna correct, but you could be long it because it was super asymmetrical because everybody was on the opposite side of that trade and they were getting shorter. So that's like one thing. So there's the duration and the setup. And then if you look a few days out, investors are super hedged. So that was the, what is it today? Like the first two days, the next is like the week, right? So looking a few days out, investors are, are very, very hedged going into the, um, you know, the Friday's monthly OPEX catalyst. So what we saw earlier this year is like every single time that there was option, options expiration, you know, things would go down, all risk assets would go down, liquidity was taken out, and then you'd see this rip afterwards. People repositioned, things rip. And so that didn't happen last time, so we'll have to see. But you know, coming into this one, everyone's already hedged, so you don't have to hedge. So again, you might be saying, okay, the world, maybe I'm a little bit bearish, but everyone is already positioned short-term bearish. You see what you saw in the last couple of weeks is you might get a little down day, but it's not very, the magnitude's not big, it doesn't last very long because everyone like scoops it back up. So, you know, so that's the short duration, call it the one week duration. And then you go look at the intermediate term um, and we start to see the slight improvement. You're seeing this rebound in the consumer spend. And so even though you might have gotten consumer sentiment negative, you have to say, well, what is the data actually telling me? It's telling me that people are spending and they're spending big. So again, that data dependency having a process and knowing where everybody else's position is key. So that lets you know, because obviously when there's melt-ups, the last part is often very violent. So if you're absolutely returned, you can say, okay, well, I'm willing to miss out because I don't know how to make a transition maybe. Maybe I don't have a process. But let's say you do have a process. That's how you tell you know, why everyone else's position through all these different metrics that I mentioned and a few others. Can you stay in the party? Can you stay bullish on certain kind of risk assets? And that's what enabled us to stay in the market. Because like many people also, you might be listening, they might have to perform versus a benchmark for some of their clients, right? We do, we have pensions that perform against a benchmark and family offices that have a set benchmark. So we have to care. We can't sit out for six months and just say, well, we're not sure when the transition's gonna happen. Otherwise you would have been you know, vastly underperforming. All right, uh, that is great context. And if I can maybe just try to re-summarize a little bit for folks. Um, uh, obviously you said that you know, the, the big things that you focus on and that people who are sort of actively in this market, especially on the institutional side have to focus on is uh, process, data and duration. And you just walked us through a bunch of uh, great examples on duration. Um, it seems like the short-term duration stuff when we're talking sort of you know, days or a week or two, that's more sort of like trading, right? Where you're, you're, you know, seeing where people are positioned, you're kind of reading the real-time data and you're, you're, you're trying to, you know, take a short-term position that you hope is going to be right. That's probably not relevant to too many of the people watching this because they're just regular investors or 
they're not going to be glued to their screens the way that you are. Um, uh, but certainly understand how that's how the game has to work on the institutional side. Um, and then secondly, it sounded like you said, kind of for, for longer duration uh, investments or positions, you said the, the key is, you know, coming up with a thesis that you, know, you see an imbalance, you see what you think is an opportunity and really hanging in there for the repricing moment, right? Yeah. You mentioned that melt-ups when they happen, happen, you know, they're extreme and usually quick. I'm sure the same probably happens on downward repricings as well. So part of it is just, um, you know, creating a thesis, sticking to it with conviction. I, I'm certain you must mean revisiting it from time to time just to make sure something hasn't changed in the math and you're holding on to a bad idea. But if not, it's it's staying in there until what you think is what you calculate is going to happen actually happens. So is, is all that correct, more or less? Um, yes and no. I think partially, but I think the key difference is this: is that and like we were always known as the fundamental value investors. So that's part two of our process. We call it our quality value framework. That's security selection. That's when you have a thesis. It's you know private equity like due diligence and decks and and um, understanding what your value drivers are. But I think that the key thing of the last decade is there's obviously been a proliferation of passive uh, investors and dollars going into passive strategies, as well as, you know, I think JP Morgan puts it, 90% of trades are computer-based. And so if you don't understand how everybody else is positioned, you don't understand, right, what is driving the security that you have a thesis on, your, your thesis may not matter because people might be trading that security or using that security for a different purpose. So we really segment that you want alignment in the three things is the macroeconomic. So is your, whether it's an asset class, a sector or exposure, whatever it is aligned with the macroeconomic data. So which is currently reflation everywhere, but China, and Brazil, but you know, for most geographies around the world. So is it you know, aligned with you know, back testing of what does well there? Um, or, you know, sets number one, and then two, you know, are your thesis drivers playing out? But then three, is the technical statistics backing you up? Because maybe you believe in a thesis, but your security is going down, right? So you better know, is it because it's macroeconomic drivers? Or maybe some of you are shorting that security because they're wrong something else. So you can't forget that, that technical, which is really not about trading. Again, it's about investor positioning. It's knowing how and why the security is moving the way it is. It's like, is it on fundamental stuff or is it not on fundamental stuff? And so even if we take an intermediate or long-term view, like your viewers do, and we do for most of our folks, that's what we're looking at. We're looking out and saying, how do we position the portfolio for next year? You cannot forget those current technical trading signals to understand what you own, because it's just not all about it's not all about having a multiple or a price target or your thesis drivers, because someone else, like a big player might be trading that security for other reasons. Got it, got it, okay. Um, probably It's probably a horrible analogy, but it's like if you've determined that uh, this path of the paths you could take is a safe path to walk down, um, that's your thesis. Uh, but you just gotta keep your eyes out that in case a hungry grizzly bear just happens to walk across the path, that's your technical signal that says, hey, wait a minute, maybe I got to change course here for a second. Yeah. Or an army is using that same path to do the war to some other country that has nothing to do with you. Like your yeah. path is going somewhere happy and safe, but there's some other force that's using that same path for a completely different reason. So you have to understand those technical drivers to say, is it aligned with like how I expect this thing to be moving? Or if not, like what am I missing? I think that's the key thing. It doesn't mean you're a short-term trader. 
but you're understanding that the securities movements are aligned with your expectations on how it should be moving. Okay, makes total sense, uh, but you're making me think of this question, which is how realistic is it to expect the average investor, um, you know, somebody who doesn't watch, you know, stocks day in, day out, um, all day long, uh, to, to really have that level of understanding. I mean, it is, is it, so I'm curious to hear your answer to that. And, and you know, maybe the follow-up question is just, does that really mean that everybody should be working with a professional advisor who does do this 24-7? But what do you think? Well, I think a lot of advisors don't do that. So I, would, I caution folks. Um, but I think you do have to have some sort of process and data-driven process to be able to compete against a lot of people out there. So what do you do, right? You're an individual investor and you have a full-time job, but you're really interested in managing your portfolio. I think you can get data from other people who just do it really well. And people are, you know, you're welcome to contact me and I can give you places where I get some of my data and they put it into context, right? And so let's say you spend, you know, 15 minutes a day, just like reading through, it could be a once a week, you're reading through understanding what are some of the big macroeconomic drivers? You know, for a while, we had a decade of almost smooth sailing in that, in that front. And so it doesn't mean that that's changing all the time. In a pandemic, it changes a bit more. And obviously next year, we're, we're seeing some deceleration in our horizon, but you wanna be ready for that. Again, it doesn't mean it's changing every day, but you wanna be well read in that so you're prepared. And then, you know, you can have your own thesis and fundamentals of the businesses that you want. You can use other, you know, research providers to help you there. Um, I can tell you the ones that, that I think you know, good, do a good job of outlining things if you, know, you wanna read other people's perspectives. But then the third part, that technical part that you're talking about, you know, a lot of clients have asked us, can they use our, um, our framework and our algorithms? We're actually putting something together um, that we might be able to share with folks. Uh, it's, it's a way we just understand it's data that's available from Bloomberg and other places. And you're right, it's really expensive data people aren't glued to their seats, but if you have it put in perspective for you, then you can take a look at your securities that you're interested in to be able to say, okay, I can see these in, you know, specific statistics that should matter, like implied volatility on a security should matter to you because if it's versus realized, if it's at a discount, it means that nobody's paying for protection. So if people are complacent, obviously the risk goes up. If it's at a premium, it means that maybe a lot of people are protecting that security. So you don't have to worry about it. So I don't think you have to boil the ocean with data, but there's certain data that you should be able to look at if you're running your own portfolio to say, okay, you know, if something doesn't seem to be moving the way I'm expecting to, maybe these statistics will give me a little bit of a sign why. But if you don't understand that, I would say you should get out because there's a lot of people spending all their time trying to figure it out and understanding how things are moving. And so, you know, you, you wanna be focused on those securities or those exposures where you feel like you have some sort of edge. All right, yeah, and I mean, as you and I know, and you way more than me, you know, there is an asymmetry of information out there. There are lots of institutions paying lots and lots of money and they've got lots and lots of contacts to be able to find out which armies are gonna start, you know, crossing which paths yeah. next that the average person really just isn't, unless maybe they have access to one of these systems you're talking about. and and. Um, I don't know if we have time to go too much into it here, but but the service that you're talking about, you're working on when and if that launches, um, love to have you back on. You can tell folks about that. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Um, but uh, all right. So one thing we haven't talked about here on the bullish side, um, which um, I imagine has got to have been a pretty substantial part of the bullish case for the past, gosh, decade or so, has been, you know, the Fed. 
<laughs> you know, creating this massive tailwind at, at the back uh, there with, uh, you know, record low interest rates, um, you know, asset purchases. Uh, it's really kind of been the bull's best friend. Um, uh, so, A, curious, any thoughts you have on that? And you just mentioned the word deceleration. Um, I, I think there's multiple factors that go into that, but certainly one of those has got to be tapering, potentially tightening, you know, uh, et cetera, on the Fed's part. So um, where does the Fed fit in into your outlook right now? Sure, it's the Fed and it's all central central banks. But I think what you have to say, you know, say is that call it in the next six months, what you're seeing is pretty strong growth in GDP accelerating in most places other than, you know, from large um, countries, China. Uh, and so when you see that, you know, and if inflation is still high, it doesn't have to accelerate, but it can still stay high, then you're going to see dot plots and people being really concerned about, um, you know, are rates going to be pulled in here? Obviously, there's a set transition of liquidity. So where do you know that, right? But in terms of the dot plots and interest rate rises, you know, they're going to be looking to that the accelerating growth of GDP or not. And so what happens, though, if you don't get that? then those dot plots get pushed out. So like maybe the biggest surprise of 2022 is actually dot plots come in in the next few months. So people are worried that inflation is going to make people raise rate, you know, the Fed and others raise rate for too soon um, or earlier. But then if you start seeing decelerating growth, like regardless of inflation being higher or not, you're not going to see central banks like killing their economies by jacking rates up if they're seeing that their economies are slowing down. And so I think the key thing to watch here is the, whether it's accelerating or decelerating the growth of GDP. And for people who want to just get you know, free data online, also watch your PMIs. So are, is the growth of PMIs accelerating? Are they staying above 50 to 53 on an absolute level? Um, because once you start dipping below 53 and obviously 50, you know, that tends to be not a good sign for risk assets. But to answer your question on rates, you're not going to see a lot of um, governments raise rates at that time because they're going to be more worried about keeping their economies afloat. So let me just tug on that thread for one second. So um, totally understand the rationale behind what you said. Um, though, what if inflation continues to rage on from here? Um, I guess my question is: Is, that's is your there stat a, inflation? That's that's the yeah, stat inflation. It, but it, but then is there the, yeah. policies boxed in? Yeah, policies boxed in because they can't raise the rates because they're going to go, oh, that's going to kill our economy. We know that does. So that's when you have. So what does well there, right? So you kind of look to what assets do well in what we call, you know, uh, inflationary environment. That's when you switch back to, you know, you can have more gold. You don't have energy. You know, so we have a whole playbook around the world of what does well, what doesn't do well there. So you can go long or short certain things, but that's when you have to be a much more careful. And then the word, you know, the, the trickiest part is let's say you're going from inflation, inflation to deflation. So, you know, inflation then starts to decelerate and GDP growth is decelerating. Then, you know, most risk assets don't do well. And that's kind of a, what we're expecting probably by the end of next year is you say, It'll be a little bit different than the first quarter of 2020, which we had ex actually expected um, to be decelerating anyways. So regardless of the pandemic, but that's when you go, you know, long the treasuries, long the gold, you know, you want to go long Japanese <laughs> drugstores if you have to own something, you know, and you're shorting oil and you're shorting tech, high beta, short leverage, you're shorting all those things, right? But, you know, until that point, you can't be doing that now a year in advance. And so you have to play the game unless you can just sit there and cash all year to be able to say, well, you know, what's the path from here to there? What's the timeline to that? 
So again, unless you have a process with certain data that you're looking to for the sign of when to make that transition, you don't do it on a day. It tends to be a little bit over time that you're transitioning in that portfolio. So you wanna obviously be doing that proactively, but I wouldn't be concerned about uh, most governments making the mistake of having a decelerating economy and jacking up rates. It'll only be that actually the bond market investors pull that dot, you know, pull, pull the, the dot plot forward in their mind, or if they don't see that dot plot come forward. But if you had this, you know, rip roar back of the consumer, of an industrials, and that happened, so you could see this reflationary market, then followed by like a deflationary environment when none of that came to pass. So that's why, again, you have to be really data dependent. You can't say exactly it's going to be like that next year. You have, that's why every morning, that's all I do from 6 to 6.30 in the morning is watching that data to say, okay, how the probabilities change? Where is this path for every single you know, country around the world that we care about? And, and that puts into perspective for you the playbook that you have to have for your portfolio. All right. So I'm going to condense everything you just said there to, to be a bull uh, today, um, which you can be, and you're telling us exactly how, but you got to be vigilant and you got to be nimble. Is what yeah. I'm hearing you say. Yeah, we call it tactical, like data-driven and tactically. If you're watching it and then being ready to, to make that transition. All right. So let's roll up our sleeves here for a minute and let's really get into your your outlook and where you see opportunity right now. So you, you just gave us a couple of different uh, potential trend trajectories, but for how you're positioning right now, um, what, what are the what are the sectors? What are the the trends, what are the specific companies perhaps that, uh, that you see greatest opportunity in right now? So in terms of asset classes, obviously it means equities. If you're in a reflationary environment, equities do better than bonds because rates are rising and bonds and bond-like securities don't do well. Um, so within there, you're looking for exposure. So you know your energy exposures do well, crypto does well. Um, infotech, so we're looking at sectors now, consumer discretionary, infotech, some materials, some industrials, you know, you can own a lot. What doesn't tend to do well is bond-like stuff. So you could have been short staples, utilities, um, could have been short uh, in terms of geographies. Uh, the worst looking geography, because it was the first best one coming out of the pandemic was China, and then it was the, the first worst one. Um, but it'll be then the first one to bounce back uh, after next year. So like you'll call it middle end of next year. Uh, but that'd be the one geography that, you know, you could have been short, but we, we actually have taken on short off now because we're not sure on the timing of the rebound. I think it'll still be a little bit while from here, but it's pretty well um, covered that a lot of people have been short that. Um, and then, you know, like one day, like one today, like what has that view plus the technicals, you could go long staples, even though it's bond-like and short utilities, because like actually utilities are overbought and staples are underbought. So that would have been a pair trade if you just want to trade it, but still keep that exposure of a bond-like security. So I don't want to own a bond, but if I had to own a bond, then I'd go, you know, long staple short utilities because one is overowned and one is underowned. Um, you know, uh, the other thing I'd say right now is that investors really need to be aware that the breakdown in the one year realized volatility has catalyzed systematic buying that could persist. And so as I was told you, a lot of people are short the market, whether it's by options or shorts themselves. And so you do have to be careful when everyone is short stuff even going into this options expert and the like, that, that again, if you see any kind of dislocation, it may not persist for very long. So if you're betting that things are bad, um, you need to be careful that that could have a, a more violent bounce up. Um, on a day like today, you know, Ethereum and other crypto were, were off a lot because of the news coming out of China, so you could have bought that. 
Um, we sold our Playboy out of several accounts because it's up over 30% today. That's, that's another thing that's you know, totally technical. When things are overbought, you might have a fundamental view that certain businesses are gonna do really well over the next few years, but you're getting overpaid today. And so when you get overpaid, like our lesson learned is you have to take off exposure. So that'd be another good example today of you know, not looking at the fundamentals, but just looking at the technicals to say, yeah, someone's paying like double for my house and it's worth, I'm gonna sell my house. And I'm gonna sit there for a little while and buy a different house, right? That's, that's undervalued. Um, you know, going forward, if you're checking a more intermediate term play, you know, most people have really under-owned the Eurozone. And if you look at the Europe, you know, European data, the France headline CPI was 3.2%, you know, um, it's been the highest since September 08. You know, France had a solid number, Italy, um, and we're looking at Dutch consumer spending was strong. So we're looking at a lot of European data to say you could stay in that reflationary trade. So, you know, we have positions all over the Eurozone. And again, it's under owned. So European banks, another great example. So do you have to pick a European bank? No, you could actually go with a US ETF, like the EUFN. That's European banks. So again, as an investor, you could have a thesis, but say, well, how do I play it with more liquidity? Call it with the currency of, that I understand, and that might be through a US ETF, like the EUFN. So thinking of those reflationary plays in other places. Another one that Japan's been pretty much underowned, and that's been obviously volatile over the last year, uh, but that'd be another one. You could do the EWJ, it's the Japanese ETF. Um, that, that we think also has like more staying power from a macroeconomic standpoint and, and less owned than other um, geographies. So again, you can play it with sectors, you can play with asset classes, you can play it um, with geographies. So lots of different ways to play that reflationary and buy it on a day that's down. <laughs> you know, don't buy it on a day where things have like rip it up. And we've seen that every single week. There's some kind of opportunity where you have this day where all of a sudden everybody's worried about inflation. Pick it up on that day, you know, just... You don't have to be doing a lot of statistics, just you'll know that people most likely will buy that dip right now. That's when you pick it up. And I guess, you know, you can watch whether it's Fast Money or Twitter or whatever to find out when is this macroeconomic data um, transitioning to less bullish. But for right now, what we see for the next couple of months that it, it should remain pretty solid. Um, so you could probably keep playing those reflationary plays on those dips. All right, wow, thank you so much for dialing through all that. Um... All right, so uh, I've got wait, I've got a couple of questions from uh, the Twitterverse because I mentioned to folks that you were coming on here. A lot of folks were excited to be able to ask you some questions. Uh, I guess before I do, and, and I'm not trying to pull you over to the dark side, but um, uh, looking at a lot of the user questions, uh, I, I know folks would love to hear your thoughts on a few of these sort of macro questions that we talk a lot about on this channel uh, normally. And I guess hearing you talk about um, kind of how you're looking at, you know, stocks being over-owned or under-owned or whatnot, how much does valuation come into play? And I say that with the backdrop that when you look at historic valuation metrics, this market is more overvalued or at least more highly valued than it's ever been by a number of those metrics, whether it's PE, whether it's price to sales, Buffett ratio. I mean, just there's a whole da -da 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 long list, right? So uh, are you making decisions really taking the actual valuation into account or is it just sort of all relative at this point? Like this is not quite as crazy as this. Well, I guess I learned a lot over time that I think that valuation multiples, like that's not how you look at 
what you pay for something. And so I would argue, even from what you said, it's not the truth for everything. Like European banks are, don't have that issue you're talking about on historical valuation metrics. So I don't think that that's the case and you can use a broad brush across all assets, um, number one. But number two, like the most important thing, like if anybody learns anything from this is that that third part of our framework, you have to understand what other people are willing to pay for that security. And so don't tell me anybody knows that like a REIT should be six times multiple or five times, you know, multiple on cash flow or whatever. Like that does not make sense. Because what why wasn't it six and a half? Why isn't it seven? Like that's not how securities are really traded. Yeah, so and sorry to, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. can we use this as the example? Yeah. Um, Rivian. Yeah, well, I don't own it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, I own things that I can understand that are like um, asymmetric and that have statistics that mean something. So on something like that, that's that's a passion play, right? right. And so that's in a whole other element. That's a whole other talk we could have about, you know, do you trade? Like, when should someone be trading that stuff or not? Um, but that's not relevant to, I think, the conversation, the process I'm talking about. Right? Is that it. Well, there's, there's no historical data to apply to? Yeah, it. yeah. So that's really about: Do you want to gamble or do you not want to gamble? You know, like that's up to you. Um, but but that's not having a process. Yeah, I, I sort of mentioned it, sort of just as an extreme case of there is at least a big part of the market, and and it's in the stocks that kind of comprise a lot of the value of the major indices where you know, we're at these valuation metrics sure. that had never been seen before in history. So there, there is this sort of investor appetite for speculation, or at least willingness to pay a lot more per dollar of earning or dollar of loss uh, than before in history. And I just wonder how much of, of that factors into sort of your, your trading decisions, but it, it's, it sounds like it probably yes, does to a certain does. extent. It does, it does some, but that's like one of many things you have to look at, right? Because what if somebody owns it, but then they bought a ton of put protection on that. What if the whole world like owned Amazon, but they bought a ridiculous amount of put protection on it? That's what happened right, in the French governmental elections a few years ago. That's what often happens, like not just in um, high flying stocks, but like positioning overall. So again, you have to know how is everybody else positioned? Because if everybody else has you know, put protection on that, then it just means the asymmetry is still to the upside for whether it's new investors or new capital flows to, from passive ETFs or whatever it is. So again, it's like having your, you know, your thesis, having your fundamentals, but then how is everyone else, how is that thing trading? You know, and again, like how is everybody else positioned? So that those things all are in constant with each other. You can't look at any one thing in isolation and make the, the, the trade decision. Okay, um, uh, that's fascinating. And, and correct me if you think differently, but hearing you say that, it it sounds like let's use your example where everybody you know owns one of these super high price stocks, but they also have a bunch of put protection on it. If you're just a regular investor and you think, oh well, a lot of people own this stock and it keeps going up, I'm going to buy that stock. If you're only long the stock, you're taking yeah, bad a highly speculative gamble, <laughs> but you have no downside protection. <laughs> That's true, but if everybody else does, then it kind of doesn't matter because the asymmetry is in your side. I'm not saying that's what's happening in a lot of that, but that's also if you remember what it was like a year ago or whatever, when you saw that like melt up in tech stocks because everybody was buying calls and then you have to understand what happens with the banks and then they're buying the underlying, right? And so again, what's moving the security price that you have to understand what's happening with it. 
Um, but for the most case, like we don't do the, like I can comment on the mean stocks, like how would I trade it? But that's not what we do for clients because that's not, you know, our process. It's not how we invest. But I also have to understand how, do you, how would you trade something like that? And that's like a, a different process you have to use. So again, you have to understand what's driving the security you're looking at and that, the, you know, the process used to make decisions on that. All right, great, thanks. I, I just, I, um, I feel like, uh, this is super helpful because I feel like there are people probably watching this whose heads are beating to hurt a little bit right now saying like, wow. Like seems- what, you can't have one process for everything. Yeah, because like, because if you know, <laughs> like I happen to know a short seller that goes on Twitter and really like pushes things, right? And what if that works for the things that he's invested in? Then, then that's what's driving that security. It's not anybody's fundamentals on that day. And so again, like, so maybe then I just take my ball and I don't play, you know, I go to a different court and I play in a court that makes sense where the data makes sense. And so you have to understand what are the games that you are willing to play? Like maybe you want to ski and play basketball, but you don't want to play football. Right. And so again, like you have to understand the risks you're taking and what are the games, you know, what, what are the environments that you're going to play in? Yeah, that's great. That's great context. Um, all right. So one more sort of macro question here, which is, uh, you know, I think I think we all would have been shocked if uh, March of 2020, when we all saw the markets, you know, correct as hard as they did, and we were in the middle of the global pandemic with all the uncertainty. I think if somebody had told us, hey, you know what, uh, don't worry, the S&P is going to go up by 80% this year, and then it's going to go off to the races again in 2021, right? And a, a lot of what drove that, I'm not saying it's the only thing that drove it, but a lot of what drove that was, you know, in the US alone, $10 trillion, right? You know, 4 trillion in monetary stimulus and about 6 trillion in, in fiscal stimulus. Um, and, and that's played a role in really, you know, getting asset prices to where they are today. As we look forward to 2022, the Fed is talking about taper, tapering, maybe even tightening. Bullard just sort of said this morning, he thinks tightenings, you know, should happen at some point next year. Um, and Congress is having a lot harder time getting fiscal stimulus passed. What do you think the impact of that's going to be, the, the turning off of those stimulus spigots? Well, they obviously, when you take liquidity out of a system, that's not usually good for asset prices. But you also have to say what's known versus not known. People know like what the path is. The Fed's been very clear about what the path is on liquidity getting sucked out. But there's still liquidity going in right now, so it, it's pretty meaningful. So again, you can't delete that just because it's declining. You have to say like, okay, well, it's a time frame on that. And then your other point about interest rates, you know, and fiscal spend um, gets to again my point of looking at the data. So when does the data start to decelerate? It decelerates faster here in the U.S. versus in the eurozone. Um, China's bad for a while, but then it's called the first mega economy to bounce back. And so I look at it as um, a portfolio. Um, I think of it as popcorn popping. So I want idiosyncratic risk. So I want things moving at different times. And I need to be able to play this game to say, okay, maybe there's a portion of my portfolio then that I'm willing to be long certain things that everyone's been short, um, that has asymmetric rest to the upside with a macro forecast that's going to do better than everywhere else, right? And maybe that's, you know, European banks, or maybe that's um, Chinese stocks. Like, you know, you kind of do your process and figure out what those things are. And I want those moving at different times. But then the other part you're saying is like, okay, I also need a position for US companies probably having higher costs, whether it's labor um, or input costs, uh, other input costs. 
and a decelerating growth. And so therefore, maybe I'm going to be buying more of my favorite gold companies. Maybe I'm going to be buying, you know, other businesses that have pricing power. Maybe I'm going to be buying certain things on a relative basis can outperform that people kind of under own like staples. So, so you can make switches again, because what happened? So, so we made money and not just in March of 2020, but in the first quarter of 2020. And it wasn't just because we got the pandemic right. We had written about the pandemic in our quarterly letter in January of that year. It was that you could see that the data was already going to be going down. But certain things do really well, like treasuries went up, as I said, Japanese drugstores, you had gold companies. So certain things then, people have to then take their dollar and put it somewhere first. So own the stuff right now that they're not owning, that they're short or hate, because that capital flow is good. That liquidity that the government sucked out, well, investors still have it and they're gonna be putting it where you are. That's the first step of what happens. So you can own stuff um, that can do well. But then you have to say, have a process to say, okay, well, when is that overbought? We had an institution ask us, how did you know to buy gold? It was a Canadian gold company and then sell it to buy a Canadian financial company. This is in 2020 in the depths and then sell that back to buy the gold company back. And then obviously the currency and the, the geographer, geography exposure didn't matter in that case. And again, it's about positioning. No one owned gold going into 2020 because the world was on, you know, going to be great forever. Then everyone owned the gold company, so that got overbought. We could see the macroeconomic forecast was not a V, it was you know, going to be W or fits and starts. And so um, you could go into the banks for a while because those were everyone sold those in the sell-off. So those pop back up, but then they're overowned. So then you go back to the gold, right? Because the, the recovery is not going to be as great. So you rarely have to make that many switches in a year, but a pandemic is not a normal year. But that's the type of thing that we see for next year is where you're seeing certain things that have been bad or underowned will all of a sudden be owned. So you could be long those, but then everything that people own now that is consensus, then you need to start trimming that stuff off. You maybe even put, so you don't have to short it today, but maybe you know start trimming your gains and then be ready to short that kind of stuff or take a position against it because that's when you make money to be able to be playing against overowned things pre-transition, right? And so it's tougher for the everyday investor who has a, a day job, um, but you could take some big picture um, through ETF exposures for sectors of geographies and make that kind of call. You didn't have to know like which gold company, you could have just been long the GLD, right? And so again, I think the way that I would do it if I didn't do this you know, every hour, every day, is I would pick just big picture exposures, maybe not take the individual company risks and say, okay, I can kind of look at countries and geography, like, you know, and maybe a geography, like a region and or sectors or certain kind of, you know, factor exposures, maybe play it that way. That would be an easier way to make transitions than have to say, well, when, when is Walmart going to start to decelerate, right? Is it Walmart going to be better than Target? That takes a lot more work, a lot more data than to know, should you be long retail or not long retail? Right, you can play the sector and not have to- Yeah, you can buy the XRT or short the XRT. You're either like long retail or short retail. So I think that there's ways you can do shortcuts if you don't want to be you know, bolted to your chair all the time and still make some of these transitions and make some good money and, and also manage risk. Cause that's the whole thing is, you know, like how did we make money in the downturn? It's managing risk. And so I'm just as willing tomorrow to short something that I made money on today, if that's what the the, the process is telling me. And I think you have to be thinking of that. So you have this wonderful thesis on something, 
But if the data is starting to change, you have to be willing to at least trim or sell it, if not short the same thing. All right, great. Um, what you're just sort of, I think, hitting home um, that, uh, you know, it's a challenging uh, process that takes um, a lot of attention, focus, and you, you got to be in the game, right? You just can't take weeks off at a time. So if you're a regular <laughs> I person- could. I wish they would like, close the market from August and December, give us all a month off. Hey, I, I would love that too. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but for the individual person, you know, you're doing a good job of telling people, hey, if you want to do this yourself, here are certain things you can do. And for those that are up for the challenge, absolutely. Um, but I think you're also underscoring that for those who aren't, um, and everybody has a financial future to plan for, you know, they should find a financial professional financial advisor who has an approach that they feel confident in, um, who does this type of stuff, has the, the focus and the diligence and whatnot, and work with them. And that could be your firm, could be one of the firms that Wealthian endorses, or it could yeah. be, you know, any other firm out there. But the, the point I think you're making, um, whether intentionally or not, is just sort of like, hey, it takes a lot of expertise to do this right. And if you don't have it yourself, find somebody who does. Right. Or, or what I call it is that, you know, one thing I like to do with our clients is create a sandbox, right? Is like, let's say it's a portion of their wealth that they want to play with and manage and take different risk tolerances on. And so it doesn't mean it's just one or the other, right? Is that there can be different parts of your portfolio with Absolutely. different objectives. And so I call it the sandbox where, you know, like I have a really actively trading sandbox of one of my clients who used to you know manage a fund but he wanted someone else to manage most of his estate but he loves the fact that you know he's trading futures and doing that in his sandbox and then he can have fun with that but it didn't, doesn't necessarily again have to be um, one thing or the other but I, I would just say for people it's also really important that you understand what their process is and we all make mistakes and so make sure you find somebody who can talk about like when have they made mistakes and why did it make a mistake? And, you know, what are their views going forward? What's the data that underpins it? Because if they can't communicate that, then it really means that maybe there's not a process. And so I'm not advocating for any particular firm. I'm advocating to find someone that has a process that you believe in and just making sure that they can, you know, talk about their successes and talk about their failures. I think it's really important that you have that, um, that sense of comfort with somebody and, and feel aligned with what they're doing making sure again that it's underpinned by data and process. Uh, I think it's a great point. Yeah, if they can't explain the process, it's probably a pretty good sign that the process underpinning their work isn't very good <laughs> or, or maybe doesn't. Or it's somebody else's, you know, that that's like, how do we get a lot of clients is they're often given like, you know, some pie chart options by, you know, large firms, but it's not really tactical and according to their specific objectives because they can't be. Like large shops can't give a bespoke portfolio for most people. They're just not allowed to for compliance reasons. And so again, finding someone like if you're looking for bespoke and tactical, find someone who does that and who can you know, be your partner on it. But if you just want to be like, you know what, I don't need that. I just want to know that it's like roughly doing something, you know, then just make sure it's cheap, you know, then focus on cheapness and that it's meeting the benchmark that you're looking to meet a benchmark on. You know, the only other kind of caveat I would say is like some well shops like won't give you a benchmark and your performance against the benchmark. And I think that's really wrong. So again, it doesn't matter what that benchmark is. That's for you to decide with your advisor or whatever the firm is, uh, but making sure that you both understand what your objectives are, what your risk tolerance are, you know, if there's liquidity needs, you know, the planning. So, and, and having a benchmark that, that reflects that 
because then you'll know, are you tracking month to month, quarter to quarter against that? And you can have the conversation why. Again, you don't kick them out after a month or three months, but just having the conversation to say like, do they even understand why they did a lot better, a lot worse, or similar to you know, the benchmark that you guys have agreed upon. And again, it doesn't mean that that is set in stone forever. We like to think of it as not a legal document. We like to think of it as you know, something that um, can be uh, talked about and changed all the time. So it's a living document. So you might not have any liquidity needs today, but maybe somebody wants to fund a house for their kid in a year. So that can change. Um, so finding someone who could manage through those types of changes as well with a process is very important. Great. All right. Well, thanks for that perspective. By the way, I love that sandbox idea. Um, <laughs> it's a great way to almost sort of you know be an apprentice to your financial advisor as a mentor if you want to learn you know and be, take on more and more of this yourself over time potentially. But it's also a great way just to you know learn by the school of hard knocks with a minority or a portfolio and let a professional sort of manage the rest. Um, all right, there's a question that I've been dying to ask you here because it's it's just such an interesting one. Um, so mentioned earlier on that you are on CNBC. Um, I, I, there's a sentiment out there, right or wrong, that uh, a lot of the networks, not just CNBC, but a lot of the networks, um, you know, are, um, they feel, either pressure or, or they feel an alliance with um, either the administration or just you know people that are sort of setting an agenda, want an agenda told. And one of the questions somebody asked on Twitter that they'd like me to ask you is, is being on a show like uh, Fast Money and CNBC, uh, and, and I know you're on others as well or have been others on others as well. Do you feel any sort of editorial constraints being placed on you? Like, are you told like, hey, you can't question the trend, you know, that, that inflation's transitory, or you yeah. can't talk about the risk of a market correction, um, or is all that just bunk and you can talk about whatever you want to? So I can 100% tell you on Fast Money, it's not done that way. Um, the only thing that's kind of not forced on you, but decided the day of the show is what are the topics that you're going to talk about? So you know, like sometimes we do shop it or drop it or trade it or fade it, things like that. Um, and then they ask us, and you actually see, there's usually somebody who's trading it and somebody who's fading it. So we're a pro and a con, right? And so there's no editorial, like there's never been anybody who told me what to say. It's more like, this is what we're going to talk about on the show. And you give your own views, you give your own data. So it's a hundred percent driven by, at least on that show, um, the traders themselves and often they'll own and, you know, stuff and it's all disclosed. Um, and when I, you know, I, for a few years, I was on, I did a lot on Bloomberg. I'm not allowed to do that anymore. Um, cause you have to, you know, when you have a contract, you stay with, um, the platform that you're with. Um, again, it was never that. So you got to decide what is the lineup of things that you're going to talk about on a show. And so they might say, Hey, you know, somebody's reporting today. So can we talk about, you know, Walmart and now Costco and Target, things like that, right? Like, can we talk about relevant topics of the day, but they've never said to, to say something in particular. Um, the only time that, you know, that there's ever been any sort of question of something is like, let's say I wanted to trade maybe an esoteric international security. And they might say, you know, it's not really liquid for the everyday retail investor. Is there anything like that in the US? Or is there anything, you know, along those lines? So that's not telling you to, pump up the market that's just saying, hey, can we make it relative to the viewers? But um, again, like I don't, I don't know what goes behind the scenes of all the other shows um, on any network, um, but I do know on our show, you know, and I've been on option actions now a few times and closing bell and things like that, 
is that it's never been that. It's all about what you believe. Um, okay, great. So, so you personally have not encountered any intentional censorship on the no just esoteric names that that no one wants to hear about yeah yeah yeah. well and it's good to hear um you know i I think that there are these perceptions that you know they get out there and then they just kind of persist and grow and sometimes it's really nice just to hear from the horse's mouth what what really is going on so at least it sounds like in your your experience that shows also about trading right and so um and most of the time there's people going long and short something. So um, that can't be always bullish or always bearish because most of the time, um, and then the thing I also like about that show, why I actually agreed to do it is that um, there's different perspectives, but also people are you know, collegial is that I can disagree with somebody and, and hopefully not be too disagreeable and um, talk about the data, talk about process. Um, but again, have a different view than somebody else, you know, and, and the traders on that show, there's some are more bullish and some are more bearish and whether it's on particular names or the market overall. Um, but that's the one thing I actually liked about Fast Money is that it's truly about what everybody believes. And, and Melissa Lee is a great anchor because she really pulls that out of people and she remembers what you said. She'll, she'll be like, Adam, like you're probably the bear of this, you know, she'll kind of go after it. Um, but that I think makes it a little bit more uh, legitimate of making sure that the traders not only give their viewpoints, but you know, can comment on what they said before. Because the thing I don't like is I don't like being like, oh, I'm long this today. No, today I'm short, I'm long, you know, like you're always right. So um, I've never seen that on the show either. I think that people have said when they've been wrong and, um, and then other people have been congratulatory when people got things right. And so um, that's really important for me at least of, of being on a show where, um, it can be more data driven. And also there's, you know, some fact checking going on. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for sharing that. And I'll tell you, it is fun to turn on the TV and say, oh, gosh, there's little Nadine Turman from oh. 1995 Merrill Lynch bullpen on TV. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, I don't tell anybody. So obviously some people know now, but my watch usually will blow up of just like, am I watching you in the airport or something like that? <laughs> um, I'm an introvert for, for your viewers uh, uh, by nature. So it's not something that I sought out or it's not something that I actively publicize, but obviously it's out there in the world. So when people figure it out, it is kind of funny to reconnect with people like you and other people um, <laughs> who are in a gym somewhere and, and are watching me. So it's pretty fun. Oh, it is fine. Well, your your, your greatness uh, has been uh, thrust upon you or, or forcibly grabbed from you, but uh, it's because you're so good, Nadine. Yeah. Um, all right, well, look, in, in, in wrapping up here, two last questions. Um, do you have any advice just for today? You know, most of our viewers are what I would call prudent investors. They're people that want to, um, you know, build their wealth to create a secure financial future for their families but they don't want to take excessive risk to do so. They are worried a bit about, you know, the risk of a, of a sizable market correction. Um, you know, I've had you on here to kind of give the side of the story of, hey, you know, there's opportunity out there. You, yeah. you can actually, you know, be invested in today's market. Is there any yeah. parting advice you'd give them that you haven't mentioned already? You know, so have, I know sometimes one of them's less expensive than another one, but if they're looking for a macroeconomic data that's kind of packaged, um, you know, 42 Macro run by Darius Dale has really great macroeconomic data, and so does um, Absolute Strategy Research. They're out of London. And so finding folks who have, you know, a process and data, but then also analyze it and give good insights, I think could be really helpful because they're doing the work for you. 
um, you know, and you're not having to buy that data and crunch all the numbers. So that first part of our framework, there's other people who can help you with that. Um, and then the third part, the tactical, uh, again, you know, whether it's data that you can get or, or can find from other places, again, you can contact me, I can give you some um, thoughts on where to go for that. But I think, again, having a process and so leveraging other people who are doing pieces of that process is a really great way to do it. Um, but then again, if you don't want to take the time or you don't want to like, pay for that data, then work with someone who does, because then they're going to leverage it across all their clients. So, so that would be, I think, the, the recommendation. But that's also that first step that macroeconomic data is going to help you make the big shifts so you don't make the big mistakes. And I think that's important to do. And then you can spend your time with, let's say you like thinking about companies or exposures. Maybe you focus on what I call our step two is just, you know, well, which tech company do you want to buy or, you know, which gold company do you want to buy? Um, but, but decide where you want to spend your time, where you don't want to spend your time. And then really understanding yourself is what are you good at? Um, what do you want to rely other people on? And then kind of build your framework of what are you doing yourself versus um, working with others on, I think is really important. All right, great. And uh, in terms of standing on the shoulders of other ex others' expertise, oh, for yeah. folks that have enjoyed meeting you through this interview and would like to follow you and your work, where should they go? You can go to our website. So I think it's info at solsteincapital.com. So our website is just solsteincapital.com and it has a little, you can put your name in there and any kind of note if you want something or if you wanna talk with somebody, um, our team will get back to you. Uh, and then uh, we can kind of, if you're looking for advice on some data or anything, we'll put you in the right direction. We try to be helpful to people. If you're looking to talk to us, um, we'll make that happen as well. But also if we're not a match, we're more than happy to connect you with people that we think you would be a match with. You know, we try to um, put good karma out into the world and, and match people. Just kind of like if you were matching a friend uh, to get married, you know, we think of that as important for uh, an advisor or investment partner as well is that we want to make sure people are fit with the right group. So we're more than happy to, to make some intros. Excellent. All right. And when we edit this, I'll put the URL to your website right up there. Okay. All right, Nadine, thanks so much. It's been so fun reconnecting with you, seeing the great success you've been having. Um, I don't know. Like, I just find it funny. It's like you do, I do, do TV and then I turn it off. Like I, I've never watched our show. Like I just don't, I don't do it. You know, it's not my thing. Like, I don't know. I find well, it weird, but you know, but other people do. I do. There's a lot of there's a lot of other people who do exactly. But other people do just like they're watching you. Like people watch because they wanna they wanna connect. Yeah, they wanna learn. They wanna connect. All right. Well, look, Nadine. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, and sure. uh, love to have you on again. And when your when your new service that you mentioned briefly at the sure. beginning uh, rolls out, we'll have you back on to talk about that. My pleasure, Adam. It's so good to see you. We hope you've enjoyed this discussion with fund manager Nadine Terman. As she and I mentioned several times in this interview, it's a challenging environment out there for individual investors right now. So if you'd appreciate a free, no strings attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your portfolio full time, keeping in mind the risks and opportunities we talk about in this channel, just go to Wealthion.com and we'll set one up for you. And please help support Wealthion in reaching more viewers by hitting the like button and then clicking on the subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it if you haven't already. Thanks for doing that and thanks for watching.